0: Hello and welcome. My name is Karen O'Connor and you're listening to Menopause, Marriage and Motherhood. Hello and welcome to this week's episode. I'm here today with Pitt McKay. Is it McKay or Mackay? It's Mackay. It's Mackay. Scottish. (laughs) (laughs) And you are... A best-selling author in, and a pioneer in personal development and life coaching. And you've also created two different modalities, the fields of matrix th- therapies and archetypal coaching, and which I am so excited to talk about. Welcome, Pip. Thank you so much, Karen. It's absolutely
1: lovely to be here.
0: <laughs> so tell me a little bit, because what we decided to talk about today or what you suggested actually, and went, oh my God, that's perfect, is finding love after menopause, and which is a topic that's dear to my heart, I've got to say. Tell me a little bit about what you do and also what you offer people to. Talk to me about what it is you do
1: basically I came from a background where I'd experienced trauma as a child so I came from a background where I'd had sexual abuse as a child and as I grew up my family just put that under the carpet and it wasn't spoken about it was a family friend it wasn't a family member and after that I was meant to find a way of healing somehow and I didn't And so by the time I was 19, that had become a full blown depression and I didn't really know what to do about it. And I started to go to rounds of counselors and it was good to tell my story, but I didn't really feel that I had a structured way of moving forward in my healing process myself. And in the meantime, that really affected my relationships. And to begin with, I started to find some solutions and I trained in NLP, which is Neuro Linguistic Programming, which is a form of personal development and communication skills. But I found it wasn't going deep enough to help me heal. And I had a 22 year spiritual apprenticeship and I started to combine What I learned in that apprenticeship with the structures of NLP and life coaching to create new modalities of change that would go really deep and help unlock structures that might sabotage our success or structures that might stop us being in relationships. So that's really what we do. We help people clear away the past and live their future and their present with passion and purpose. And we have very specific tools and techniques that help you do that. So one of the things I found in my personal development journey was there was two processes, a very masculine results-driven way of doing personal development and life coaching and this is no comment in any of those like anthony robbins Martini, that sort of approach or there was the sort of very spiritual feminine goddess approaches and i loved both of those things but they weren't helping me i felt we needed a marriage between those two (laughs) and a bit of a middle path that was taking the best leaving the rest but the best of the structures along with the nurturing and the depth and so that's what I came up with matrix therapies and archetypal coaching where I was really combining my own spiritual apprenticeship along with better structures to create something that would really hold people at a deep level but help them get results and not just be meditating without a result that they were going to have at the end. I really wanted people to heal because that's what I wanted for myself. So that's pretty much what we do. So nowadays, what we do is we teach people how to become life coaches, but also we take people through personal development courses. And it's very specific and structured to help them clear away negative emotions, beliefs, and influences so that they can move into discovering their passion and purpose in a really clear, structured manner that gets results.
0: It's really interesting, isn't it? Because I think as we get to a certain age and we both experienced that or experiencing that, you do wonder, like, what is my purpose and what am I passionate about? Particularly if I don't, I'm not saying particularly if you've had kids and stay, stayed at home, then it's okay, the kids have left, now what? But you might have been in a job that you suddenly go, yeah, this isn't doing it for me anymore. But it's very difficult to, or it was for me, and I know I'm not alone in this, to identify, okay, so what am I passionate about anymore? <laughs> I don't know. Absolutely,
1: absolutely. And for a lot of people, they've been doing what they have to do to earn money or provide either for themselves or their families. And then there's left with being used to sacrificing their own needs for others. And that's not a good recipe for understanding what makes me happy. And what is self loving for me in a way that still allows me to contribute to others, but in a way that's sustainable and, and helps me grow and develop as well. Yeah. I've created a process where we look at using archetypes, which is the best example of something to discover who we are at a deep soul level and what we can do that makes us happy. So a lot of people identify their purpose with a job or a career, but it's really the meaning we're wanting to get from that. So somebody might be an accountant because they love numbers and they really enjoy everything being in an order. But other people will love accountancy because they help helping people and they want people to be able to organise themselves out of the chaos they find themselves in. So it's that meaning that really is what lights us up. And meaning is transferable, whereas a job is not. You're either in that job or you're retired or you're doing another job. The meaning you want to get from that job is transferable. And when you know what that meaning is, you can put it into what you want to do in retirement. You can put it into what you want to do if you change careers. You can put it into... What does it mean to have your own business and what's going to be passionate for you? So if we can find and distill meaning, then that makes a really, really big difference to us. For instance, for me, my uh, meaning in life is to inspire wonder and to create and pioneer processes that nurture people's change. So I can do that in many different ways. I don't have to be in the business I'm currently in. I don't have to be doing exactly what I'm doing now in order to do that. I could write a book or I could do a podcast. There's lots of other ways I can get that type of meaning out of my life. Once we can determine that and have great clarity on that, we can transfer it to anything, but we can also dismiss the things that don't make us happy. (laughs) But for a lot of people, like you said, they don't know that. They don't have that clarity.
0: No, I actually have no idea why I do so. I can tell you what I get out of it. But looking at life from that perspective is not something that we do, really. No. Not that we're taught to do. We don't know to do it. It's just not what we do.
1: That's exactly right.
0: Usually, uh, correct me if I'm wrong here, but it seems we... Uh, particularly when you've been doing something for a while, we end up doing it in order yes. to pay the bills in order to because I don't want to change, but not in order to provide a satisfaction. Like I, I just, my mind's blown, to be honest, thinking about it. because it just, looking at life from that perspective and looking at what you're doing or what you
1: might do from that perspective just gives everything a completely different
0: flavour, doesn't it?
1: It really does. If you're someone who wants to inspire, if you're someone who wants to go on an adventure, if you're someone who likes to organize and order things, if you're someone who likes to be creative, these are very different meanings you want to get out of life. And that helps direct you to quite specific activities that you aren't going, oh, i got to try it out to know whether I like it. You can pretty much predict whether you're going to like that or not because you know what you enjoy and what you don't. So it just makes life a lot easier. In my own business, People will ask me to talk about lots of different topics, and I could talk about many different topics, but I'll say no to things because they don't inspire me, and that's not a message of inspiration I want to give others. Whereas This topic here, looking at finding love after menopause, this is a very inspiring topic for me because it was something I struggled with and then I was able to overcome. And I want to be able to give other people a little bit of direction in that. And that makes me really happy and excited and passionate. And knowing that means I'll say yes to this topic, but I'll say no to something else. And that means my time is prioritised around what makes me happy and inspired and passionate, not prioritized around what I think I should be doing?
0: There's, there's a few questions I've got here, or yeah, anyway, a few places I want to go. Where do the archetypes come? And I, I am coming at this from a, a love after menopause or during menopause or whatever. Okay, let me go back two steps. Why? do we change so much when we get to this age? And how does it impact how we feel about the different aspects of our lives?
1: Yeah, I think there's a lot in this topic. It's such a brilliant question because I think on the one hand, our soul and who we are at the deepest soul level, I don't think it changes very much at all. But I think in terms of the way we're expressing that in the world, And our personality, I think that changes a lot with menopause. And I think there's a number of reasons for that. One, as estrogen drops out of the body, we stop being quite as people-pleasing. We stop being as other-focused and quite as empathic. And that actually gives women space to think about, what about me, (laughs) And that allows them to go, Do you know, what I'm not willing to put up with someone talking to me like that anymore. I'm not willing to put up with being second best in the family all the time. So that can create a lot of personality change. But I think in many ways that personality change is just the soul going, boy, if we don't make ourselves happy now, when are we going to? Are we The kids have left or we're not as pushed with our our business as we might have had to have been in the past. For some people, other people are very stretched with their business, but there comes a deep sense of it's now or it's never. And so I think other people will see a big personality change, but often it's just us wanting to be our authentic selves and nobody's ever seen that before because we've been so busy pleasing them and focusing on making their dreams come true, we haven't thought about what makes us happy. And I think that's a really empowering part of menopause. The other part of menopause is the massive hormonal roller coaster, often triggered by the fact that our adrenal glands are meant to take over from estrogen production. And if we've burnt our adrenals out, which many women have, either through workaholic behavior, constant busyness, or pleasing others and family responsibilities they don't have enough adrenaline left to for their sex hormones to be compensated (laughs) and so that can create really big personality shifts that aren't positive at all that are about feeling completely and utterly out of control but in some ways that sense can motivate a lot of women to start looking after their own health and thinking about themselves for the first time because they can't hold it together for others anymore. So I think that makes a really big difference. And if we're talking about love, that makes a huge difference in terms of who we want to love, why we love them and what we're willing to put up with in love. So I think those around us may see a, a bigger shift than what we feel deep inside. Are we really changing who we are? I don't think so.
0: It's, for me, it's almost like I've regressed to who I was before puberty or in early puberty. That is what it feels like. And certainly maybe even a little bit older than that before I got any of the responsibilities of having to work and all the rest of it that's how it feels to me. But to everybody else, they're like, oh, my God.
1: (laughs) In what way do you see that? What do you mean by that?
0: I suppose there's less because I've got four kids. And so my life has always been about the kids have got to do this and the kids got to do that and the kids, everything's running around the kids. And then to go, I'm over here if you want to talk to me, but I'm pretty busy and I've got other things to do. And the kids have been really supportive. But Mm -hmm. I know that they've gone, oh my gosh, mums. But then at the same time, they've also gone, mum, you need to take care of yourself. You've got to stop just sitting around waiting for others to give you something to do. Go and do something. What is it you want to do? I started, for example, and I know I'm waffling on a bit here, but I started all of the podcasting and the blogging before that because my eldest son bought me a book blogging for dummies because he said he couldn't <laughs> find a book called blogging for middle-aged women.
1: <laughs> and we won't say those two things are synonymous.
0: <laughs> Mum, you know we were all hmm. growing up and leaving home this was about 10 years ago, and I was just horrified. I've got to say I was horrified because it's such a big shift and I didn't know who I wanted to be or what I wanted at all, not Mm. at all. And then I was concerned about, I I obviously don't love them enough. That was the other thing that came up. If I was a good mother and if I loved my family enough and my husband enough, I wouldn't need to find all this to do because I'd just Mm. be doing all that. There's all sorts of things. And then more recently, it's it's a case of I don't know who to be.
1: Yeah, I think that's... I think that's one of the problems when our identity has become a caregiver, whether one's got children or not, or whether it's just a caregiver in a corporate role. But when our identity becomes that, we feel like we're losing who we are if we're not being over-generous, over-supportive, codependent, actually. (laughs) and then we feel like we're losing our identity and then all of that old programming which has been picked up from our 1950s mothers about the guilt of not being a caregiver and it's so old-fashioned now and yet that's still running around in our brain because our brain picks up that type of programming from our parents, our grandparents, and it sits there and then it's like a Trojan horse and it, it comes out <laughs> at these inopportune moments and makes us uh, hesitate about moving forward and thinking about what our empowerment is and what our self-worth is that's got nothing to do with with other people or what their needs are but uh, to do with us and even to admit, and I think this is quite common too in European cultures and English cultures, but also in Chinese cultures, Vietnamese cultures, all these different areas that that somehow it's selfish to be thinking of oneself. And we really need to see, just like your beautiful children, a saying, they're saying, mum, we'll start to feel guilty that you're not happy. <laughs> and then we'll start to be wanting to look after you if you can't go ahead and find your passion, and they want to free you to do that. And I think for a lot of women, they don't know how to free themselves from that. And I think in many places, the place to start is by clearing out the old baggage and when that is not sitting on us, it becomes easier to see who we are without that programming, without those negative emotions and beliefs, we can start to get a sense of who we are. And then if we can start to find some positive, freeing labels, and that sounds counterintuitive, but sometimes if we don't have names for things, if we don't have names for possible ways of being or possible options for us in terms of personality we actually don't know what choices we have and I think this is where archetypes become a really fantastic way of seeing categories of things that might inspire our interest or pique our passion to start looking at and once we can categorize that we can go okay I am a creative nurturer for example example so I am a creative nurturer so these people often in what we call the shadow get caught up in everybody else's needs and looking after everybody else like a caregiver but in the light the creative nurture is all about creating what you're passionate about and what you create is an example to others rather than sacrificing who I am to look after others It becomes more that case of if I'm a healthy, sustainable, creative being, other people who are attracted to creativity can see that there's another way of being creative. And if I can nurture myself and then still nurture those I care about, but in a sustainable way, that's a really wonderful example to others who are caring because a lot of people who are caring and aren't successful. So then why would you want to be that? (laughs) Why would you want to follow that as an example? But some people are just that by nature. So to be able to give them examples of how you can be that and still be an empowered woman, like Oprah. Oprah is clearly a generous, caring individual who went through a lot of trauma, a lot of sexual abuse herself, and she was able to overcome that by surrounding herself with good people and following her own passion and then she's one of the most influential people of the 21st century and she can influence so many more people that way than if she'd sacrificed herself and allowed herself to be further abused and further taken advantage of. She's not even going to save the one person she's trying to save that way. All she does is teach other women how to be downtrodden And I think this is where we've got to shift it around. It's not being selfish at all. It's about being an incredible example for others about how you can be empowered in a caring way and that how important that is for others and is a better example than the martyred self-sacrificer is.
0: And, And it's interesting you saying that because I know myself, as you're talking, I'm going, oh, yeah. And, and this is why I related it back to the teenage years, because I was trying on different ways of being to see if they worked for me because mm. I just didn't know how to, who it was, who, who was I? I just didn't know. Yeah. And that was what fascinated me when I saw your archetypes thing, because it's like, oh, you can, you've then got like a different thing. And he'd go, yeah, I relate to that one and that one, but not necessarily to that lot. So I'll just try these two on. But it's a much more positive thing as well, isn't it? Because And, and what's the word I'm looking for? There's less likelihood of a mistake, mm-hmm. for want of a better expression, and just because you see somebody and you go, oh my gosh, they're really amazing and I want to be like them, but it's nothing like what you actually really are.
1: Absolutely. <laughs> if you
0: don't align with your values. It cuts out that sort of thing, doesn't it?
1: It, it really does. In a way, I think, The word mistake can be quite a good word. Obviously, it can be used as instead of we all know mistakes are learning experiences and all of that. But sometimes you just don't want to learn the same thing over and over again. Sometimes you want to learn it and then move on with something that's more evolving for you. And I think this is true. I'm really in the end, a mistake just means you took stump you mistook something like you didn't take the thing you wanted you took something you didn't want instead and so I think it's a fair enough concept a lot of people do this in wealth creation they will see a particular person who is very rules-based very structured very organized very into budgeting and they'll go that's how you make money because that person has been successful but if you're not like that at all you've now got to turn yourself inside out, apply a whole lot of restrictive, what feels repressing structures that don't suit you, and then you're not going to stick to it. So that's not going to be a good wealth creation strategy for you. And if you understand that about yourself, it makes it a lot easier to find something. Like a friend of mine, I remember before I knew my archetypes and before I understand anything about archetypes at all, I said to her, oh, I suppose I better start budgeting. And she said, Pip, why don't you find better ways to make more money and then you won't have to budget? And I was just like, oh, <laughs> that is fantastic. And that's actually what I did. And it worked so much better for me. Obviously, I'm a business owner. and I've been a business owner for 23 years. So clearly you have to be able to understand your numbers and read a spreadsheet. But really a lot of what I understand about my business is pretty intuitive. So yes, I can understand that, but I don't spend very much time on that which creating a budget would take up a lot of time and I would be drained at the end of the day, whereas thinking about something I could create that's going to inspire people to want to invest with us, that's a lot more energising, a lot more fun and a lot more like me. So that's really great. On the In the 22 Principles of Success, Love and Happiness, which is the workshop we've got coming up this weekend, we look at each archetype and the type of person and type of qualities that archetype has. And then we look at a very wealthy person who's like that. For instance, someone who likes to try lots of different things on, which was what you were talking about there, Karen, we often call that person the innocent adventurer. They often have, they often look or feel younger than they are. They like to go on adventures. They love new things. They love a lot of variety. And so For them, it's quite normal to want to try different things on and to see what suits them and to maybe have a variety of different things on their plate at the same time. And traditionally, people would say, you've got to just focus on one thing and that's it. And then the person just gets bored and then they can't continue doing what they're doing. But if we look at someone like Richard Branson, who has Innocent Adventurer, We can see that Peter Pan childlike quality. He's given up his record, thriving record business to buy an (laughs) aeroplane. The Virgin Group's got 40 different businesses under its umbrella. And in fact, him having a variety of things allowed his business to succeed through a pandemic where all the planes were grounded. If he had only one business and it was aeroplanes, it wouldn't have been sustainable. It works for him. But if there's somebody else who's very structured and risk-averse, running a business like Richard Branson won't work. (laughs) Obviously, Richard Branson also had a lot of tenacity and he did follow through and keep going with something. And he did know how to delegate and make sure there were the right people in the business or he wouldn't be able to sustain 40 different companies. But it just goes to show that whatever lights you up and makes you happy, there is a way of that becoming financially successful if you're modelling the right people and not trying to make yourself someone you're not.
0: That's really fascinating. And I was just going to tie this back to love as well because that is spectacular what you just said to me then because you've nailed my personality. (laughs) (laughs) I've got to be doing something new. And it's one of the reasons why I love doing the podcasting because I'm talking to new people all the time and I'm Mm -hmm. sharing them. And I'm sharing myself and it just keeps, it's interesting. It's not just me yacking at the screen. It's, I get to do something different. And then coming up with the Richard Branson archetype for money, because I have exactly the same thing that you were talking about. A friend who does things and she's organized and she's this, and I feel so inadequate whenever I talk to her. (laughs)
1: no not that (laughs) yeah exactly but now it's just a part of the variety of human behavior and we just go mother nature created all these different personality types and that that enhances the human species everybody is just very rules-based and methodical then we would have no entrepreneurship and that's fine as long as you don't have suddenly an ice age or you don't need the human race to to rapidly adapt. In a rapidly changing world, innocent adventurers are really important and necessary because they can change really quickly, whereas the methodical person doesn't find it easy to change. But if the whole world was innocent adventurers and we didn't have what we call the ruler archetype, the methodical person, then there would be no systems, there would be no structure and we wouldn't be able to maintain what we have until change is necessary. So it's like Mother Nature knew exactly what she's doing. She's got these different types and we should be fulfilling our role in that type. If we're trying to be someone we're not, then we're just going to be a second-hand version or a second-rate version of what someone else can do really well. Whereas if we know who we are and we give ourselves permission to be that, we become a first-rate version of who we are and that's very empowering and powerful.
0: And how does this apply to love? Because it obviously does. There's different yeah, types, aren't there? And thinking about it from what we started talking about, how when you get to menopause you realise you've gotten into way of being for want of a different expression that may not work for you any longer. So we become in effect a different archetype to what we naturally are and we revert archetypes, is that right?
1: I think we do. I think we try to be someone we're not and then at menopause we're like I did feel I had to be that when I was younger but now I just want to be myself. So it is possible that we might revert but it's also possible that growing up who we really naturally were was repressed. Or wasn't seen as good enough. And this is common with innocent adventurers because parents are trying to calm the exuberance down, speak quieter, not rock the boat quite as much, not be so not be too much, too loud, too big, too whatever. And that's been a piece of programming that lots of women have experienced. That somehow we're not allowed to be that exuberant out there loud person and we're supposed to be quieter fortunately a lot of that type of programming is changing now but it's still around and certainly our generation was affected by it so it may be that we grew up with that already repressed and that might be part of the reason why we're not sure who we are um, because who we are wasn't considered acceptable by our parents or by our school or whatever But one of the things that's also interesting about the archetypes is they have a principle and have a secret attached to them as well. And this can also really help us because people who are creative nurturers, which are people who are very loving, nurturing, often will in what we call the shadow, sacrifice themselves for others. They get into relationships where they're trying to rescue and heal someone who's broken, unhappy, or not functional. This is quite a common structure that creative nurturers get into or they attract someone who's narcissistic or someone who's very uh, selfish because those people are out looking for someone who will give because they're takers. So this is quite a common structure for creative nurturers. As they get older, they're not willing to put up with that any longer So suddenly there can be a big rocking the boat because all these people who are taking, all these people who always got their needs met and the creative nurturer was enabling them, supporting them, sacrificing themselves for them. Then the creative nurturer puts their foot down and goes, does some personal development or (laughs) reads some books or whatever and they just like put their foot down and go, you're a narcissist or (laughs) or you're being really selfish and I'm not willing to put up with this anymore. And then... It's just all hell breaks loose, and people are like, "Who are you? And have you joined a cult?" or <laughs> all this sort of stuff. <laughs> but in actual fact, the person is just simply not even to the middle line of the balance between their needs and other people's needs. They're just they've just moved a little bit away from enabling at an extreme, and they just come this far, and then the other person's kicking up a big stink, and so. I say to people, intimate relationship, we should never get into an intimate relationship as if we are someone's mother. And yet so many women, I hear them say, oh, I don't just have two children, I've got three because my husband is like another child. That's also partly our responsibility. That's because we've got into a relationship and we've care taken and we didn't set that up right at the beginning, often because... Creative nurturers think that they're not lovable unless they're giving. They're not lovable unless they're supporting. They're not lovable unless they're peacemaking and giving. So they overdo that and they actually train other people to expect that from them. So in many ways we need to do a weaning process where we don't just suddenly expect because we've changed that this person we've trained <laughs> into expecting this from us and perhaps even got into a relationship with that expectation is suddenly going to change and the whole dynamic is going to change because we've changed. We need to take responsibility that that we were part of the setup and now if we think this relationship is one that is valuable and is one that we want to continue with we need to do a process of weaning that person off us as surrogate mother to them just like you would with adult children so we need to do that with our friends we need to do that in our relationship in so many ways and then we need to make sure we're moving into what the lover's archetype is And the secret to the lovers, and the principle is discernment and the secret is self-love. And it's basically saying if we're thinking about our intimate partner, we need to be discerning about who that person is. We need to stop thinking about what that person needs and instead go, can this person enter into a relationship where they can give as much as they take? where me being involved in that relationship is good for me is self-loving for me and that is a mature interdependent relationship and that is what all our adult relationships should be so we need to go through a big process of healing that feeling that we're only lovable if we're giving that we're not actually lovable in and of ourselves We need to heal that within. We need to heal all the beliefs and emotions and guilt and shame and fear that sits around that so that we can start to do that but not do it in a sort of aggressive, oh, I've just given so much, I've had it, I'm done, but start that process earlier and recognise that the other person also needs time to adjust to our empowerment. They're not used to that. So we do need to also take that into account as we make change.
0: Yeah, it's difficult, isn't it? It's, it's because half the time we don't even recognise what we're doing, never mind recognising it to change it because we can decide to change it but unless we see what we're doing, there's not, we're just going to be doing the same thing in different ways, I'm guessing.
1: Absolutely. And this is where it seems normal to us because we often grew up in a family like that. So we haven't really even seen very many domestic examples of it. So we see examples of it in the workplace. And so you get all these women who are empowered in the workplace and then they come home and suddenly they've turned into a 1950s housewife where is at work. (laughs) they would never let anyone speak to them like that. They would never um, put up with a business arrangement in that manner. And this is actually to do with trauma. So they call it the functional self. So what happens for a lot of people is their domestic environment had some form of trauma in it. And that may have been abuse, but it doesn't have to have been. It can just be that one of the family members, and it doesn't have to always be the woman either, by the way, but one of the family members was super disempowered and the other person's in control and calling all the shots. And even constant criticism can build up as a form of complex trauma. And so what can happen is the domestic environment is full of triggers so what happens with the trigger is we can be triggered by anything that was related or around during the time of any form of trauma. So it could be a smell like say your mother was super critical all the time. It could be the smell of her perfume. And then when you smell that smell, you find yourself instantly reacting or instantly becoming disempowered Or it could be that your father always wore the color red when he came home drunk from a football match or something. And then suddenly the color red triggers you. But lots of things in the domestic environment can create automatic behaviors because they're triggers. And this doesn't have to be trauma related, although trauma is where we see it the most. This can just be all part of programming. And then what happens is when the person first started job, this was the first time they were empowered, they could do whatever they wanted. And so there's no triggers. There's no trauma triggers. There's no behavioural triggers at work. So when the person's at work, they're fully empowered. And then they come home and they're not, and they can't understand why. But it's actually because they're getting triggered before they can even think, before they've even got awareness. They're being triggered automatically by their instinctual responses. So we talk about this on the weekend program as well because this is so powerful. This answers the question of I don't know why I responded like that. I don't know why I suddenly got angry for no reason. I don't know why I suddenly felt disempowered for no reason. I I just froze and I couldn't find the words to say. And then later on they're up in the middle of the night thinking about it over and over again And that's because their whole nervous system is only found calm when they're asleep. And now the brain has finally got a chance to process. And then they come up with all the good answers. There's a total explanation and mechanism for why that happens in the brain. And it's all about the way information comes into the brainstem first, which is our instinctual brain, and then goes up to our mammalian brain where our emotions are stored before it even gets to the thinking brain. And this is why we can end up behaving and emoting and reacting before we can think. And so when people talk about awareness is key, that's true. But unless you can get in and disentangle and unlink the triggers, then it doesn't matter if you have awareness because it'll always be an afterthought. It will be before the trigger or it will be after the trigger, but it won't be during the trigger. And this is why a lot of talking therapies don't work unless they're able to come in and start to unlock the emotional triggers and the instinctual triggers.
0: I'm just like mind blown here. (laughs) How do you get down to the
1: emotional and instinctual triggers? You need to have a process that links with the way the limbic system which is your mammalian brain and that includes parts of the brain like the amygdala and the hippocampus so the amygdala is where all your emotions are stored your hippocampus is a part of your subconscious mind it's not even conscious where the brain makes generalizations to try and make sense of emotions and this is where beliefs like i'm not worthy i'm unlovable." Uh, I'm not safe. This is where these type of uh, beliefs happen and are created. So they're actually a way that the brain is attempting to go, how can I stop the trigger from happening? If I have a belief that I'm unlovable, I won't even try to get into a relationship. And that way I can avoid all these triggers. And then your conscious brain goes, oh, There just aren't any good men out there or there aren't any good women out there. Or it goes, oh, you can't find a relationship after 50. So then our conscious brain makes sense of what the hippocampus is saying. But the hippocampus is gone, I'm not lovable. You don't even know that you've made that belief because that's still in your subconscious mind. It's just trying to make sense of emotions and trying to avoid negative emotions and triggers. Then your conscious mind's like, how come I can't find anyone? (laughs) Here I am, 50, I've done lots of work on myself, I've got lots of wonderful things to offer, but I'm still single. Oh, there mustn't be any good men out there. Oh, I'm too old too. And that's the conscious mind trying to make sense of why this belief. But this belief is actually designed to stop you finding anyone so that you don't end up getting triggered or possibly hurt by a relationship because old pain has not been resolved. So now the hippocampus creates this belief to get you to avoid the entire situation. (laughs) But it doesn't have to be just about getting into a relationship. It happens in long-term relationships too. So what can happen is the hippocampus goes, I'm just not worthy of anyone's time. So then you can't become consciously aware of there's no point asking this person to do the washing up or there's no point in asking this person to do more domestic tasks because they're not going to anyway. But that's covering a belief that's going, I'm not worthy of help, or it's my job or my role to do this. So if I have a belief, oh, they're not going to anyway, just give up on that, then I can avoid a whole area of arguments and trouble but I'm not training anybody I'm continuing to always having to do everything and then I catch myself saying to myself why do I always have to do everything there's I can never get any good help so we need to be able to first of all start to yeah hear those beliefs and go that belief is not what's really causing the problem. That is just my excuse for not engaging. And it might be a good excuse, but it's my excuse for not finding a more creative solution to the problems I'm facing. So I have to find a way of going, what's the belief underneath? Because that's what I need to heal. And you need to be able to use language and use a process that uses visualizations because the amygdala or the the emotional brain, it responds to your five senses. So not just talking and intellectualizing, that won't help because it's not a talking intellectualizing part of your brain, only your neocortex and your frontal lobe, that and that's not where these emotions and beliefs are stored. So when I created Matrix Therapies, it was all about finding language that helped you engage this deeper part of the brain and finding language that helped to create pictures or to create feelings or to create a sense that would appeal to this deeper part of our brain, to our animal brain. So you can use that type of language and you can find language that will appeal to that and will help that part of ourselves discover when did I get this belief And help you unlock that belief. So it it is a process. So we have in our work, we have specific scripts that have language that appeals to that part of the brain. And then in terms of the instinctual brain, a lot of the time when you work with this language and you do this emotional stuff, it's part of the reason why we work with archetypes because archetypes are a picture and that appeals to that part of the brain. But it's a picture that has symbols in it that appeal to, to the emotional part of your brain, that appeal to symbols, which are all the language of the subconscious mind. But we also work with a herd of horses in our longer programs. And we have a set of retreats where we do horse whispering, horse coaching, and horse meditation. Because horses are very driven, yes, by their emotions, but also by their instincts. And we find that working with horses helps to unlock some of the deeper triggers in your instinctual nature, particularly for people who have experienced any form of trauma, but are still functional. People who can still go to work. Obviously, it's outside our scope of practice if someone has a a personality disorder or, or they're in major clinical depression. Although we've had lots of people through who have a psychologist or a psychiatrist assessing them and working with them who then come to our programs as well. But generally our programs are for people who are functional but they know they've got problems <laughs> and those problems aren't resolving. And there's lots of functional people like myself who have had childhood trauma. But yeah, so we work with horses to help us unlock and go to a, a, a deeper, deeper level in that instinctual nature. So yeah, that, that's what we need to be able to do. And it's the reason why somebody might do talking therapy and talk for years and years and years and years and and not get a result, if they get an aha moment, if it drops down or they manage to feel something, then it can click through. But if you have process that is designed to do that and are using the latest in neuroscience combined with coaching processes, we find that we can get there a lot more quickly and that's what I found in myself. I was using and had been to counsellors and this is with great due respect to counsellors because there's so many places where that's so important and necessary and many people need that before they're ready to change but for people who are ready to change there's lots and lots of processes out there that can help them change really rapidly but yeah that's what I needed to do for myself and yeah and that's what I found then I could help other people with
0: just because it's about time to wrap up now, yeah. Um, can you just tell people because you've got this program starting this weekend, haven't you? It's a one day workshop and your last one for the year. Is that right?
1: Yeah, it's we may have one later in the year, but um, yeah, it's certainly the last one for the next uh, six months or so. So, this is a free one day event. And it's basically introducing people to the archetypes. And we go into a lot of detail about each one. So people can have a bit of a guess about what their archetypes are. We also look at what are the five things that create self-sabotage and how to stop that. We go deeply into how the brain functions, what can cause self-sabotage from a neuroscience perspective, And then we look deeply into why horses might help us at that instinctual level. We look at wealth and the sorts of things that stop people around money. And I also tell deeply my story around relationships because for me, I was doing all this personal development, but the tools that I was doing just wasn't getting to the crux of what was holding me back in relationships. And I really did need to unlock the deepest aspect of what had happened in my trauma, but in a way that was really safe and comfortable, wasn't really triggering for me to really change all the belief structures and the influences that were stopping me having a really successful relationship and I talk about what happened in that process and how then after menopause and after unsuccessful IVF, where I'd put on a lot of weight and then I'd had a lot of beliefs about somebody wouldn't find me attractive because of that. There were all sorts of negative beliefs in though I was horrified by that because you know that's not a belief I would have about anyone else. But they were sitting there, and their beliefs that lots of women have. I'm too old. I'm not a, an attractive size. There's all these sorts of ridiculous beliefs that we have that that are justification for why we're not finding love. And then we think, oh, I've got to fix that, rather than, hey, maybe I need to look at the beliefs and the emotions that are holding me back and heal that deep inside. And the rest will follow and yes yeah, so I do tell that story as well and how then I met my husband and we have just the most magnificent relationship and it's coming up for a decade now that we've been together so yeah I go through that story and, and what I needed to discover inside myself and what I needed to change particularly as that caring creative nurture type person to really shift the type of relationships I was attracting to myself. But yeah, so it's one day, it's completely free. It's our way of giving back. It's also our way of introducing people to our longer programs as well. So this is a win-win so that you know, we can give it to freely to as many people as possible. But at the same time, those who wanna really dig deep and go on that transformational journey can also discover and find out more information at that one day event. But there's so much value even if people don't want to come on the longer journey there's so much value in that one day event
0: so the links will be on the web page that go with the podcast but tell people how they can register or check you out get a bit more information
1: Absolutely. So it's on the 29th of July. So that's this Saturday coming. And you can just go to au. So that's just my name.com.au. You'll come up there. You'll find the homepage there has a link, and you can just go and register for free. You also get a copy of my book, The 20, my the 8th. Principles of Achievement, Love and Happiness. So you get a free copy. It's a full book that you get as well. And there's a workbook and everything that goes along with that. If for some reason you can't make that date, just register for our newsletter. We don't bombard you like some people do only once a month unless programs coming up and then we might remind people about programs. So yeah, so there's lots of information on the website. There's links to our YouTube channel and there's lots of little tidbits as well. So lots and lots of incredible information and you can register you can download my book for free as well on the website so yeah lots of ways to connect
0: thank you so much Pip you've given so much information today it's lovely
1: Thank you very much, Karen. It's really lovely that you've found this as your passion and purpose and you can contribute to so many people and particularly women. And I think this wonderful time, I think menopause can be such an empowering time if we can get our health sorted And we can get our relationships sorted then it can really be a place of incredible empowerment but until that happens we really need to be able to focus on those two things so that we can be that shining light for others to follow as an example
0: thank you so much
1: pleasure see you
0: If you enjoyed this episode be sure to subscribe and don't forget to rate and review this podcast and share it with your friends. Thanks so much for listening and I hope you're leaving with some thought-provoking information that can make a difference in your life. See you next time.